So we are looking at the launch of the church 2,000 plus years ago that you and I are still a part of, a movement of God, not an institution. And we actually have an eyewitness account of the beginnings of it. We're staying in Acts chapter 2, and then we'll be in chapter 2 one more week because it's such an important part of the story. We're going to pick up the story beginning at verse 14. The Holy Spirit has come, miraculous signs and wonders. All those that are at the temple for the Feast of Pentecost come, and some are skeptical and think they're drunk. Others are curious, what does this mean? And Peter stands up, and what we're about to read is the very first church sermon, the very first sermon ever preached as part of the church. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all men. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even... On my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was also a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and And Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off and all whom the Lord uh, our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 300, I'm sorry, 3,000 were added to their number on that day. It's a historical fact that over the first two centuries, the church expanded explosively. Historians make it a priority to understand this expansion and ultimate dominion over the Roman Empire because without it, you can't understand how we in Western civilization have come to where we are. They note three things. One is how they lived. You see, Christians were more inclusive than any other religion that had come before them. You might not see Christianity this way today because of what some people in the name of the church have done. But prior to Christianity, religion separated people, separated them by region, by ethnicity, and by class. For instance, if you lived in the mountains, you had a mountain god. If you lived near the ocean, you had an ocean god. Uh, If you wanted to follow even Judaism, you had to come under the authority of the Jewish people. The mystery religions were for the intelligentsia, the highest class. They were thought to be too sophisticated for the general population. So religion separated people. Christianity, one of the things that marked it out was how it included everyone. In fact, it was one of the scandals how women were treated as equals. You see, in Christianity, royalty, Slaves and everyone in between were admitted side by side, young and old, male and female, slave and free. And it attracted people. It was how they lived. It was also how they died. As one early bishop put it, our people die well. As the church faced persecution, how these men and women and often children died set them apart from the rest of the culture. Stories of those that were thrown to the lions and gathered together and sang hymns and rejoiced. Death had somehow lost its sting over these people in a way that society had never seen before. How they lived, how they died, but also how they loved. Emperor Julian said, we can't stop these Christians. You see, we Romans care for Romans. The Greeks care for Greeks. Jews care for Jews. Christians care for all of them. There was something in the way that Christians reached out in love and cared for other people that set them apart. Those are often listed as some of the factors in this explosive growth, but the truth is they don't explain why. You have to ask yourself, where did these three concepts, how they lived, how they died, and how they loved, come from? They were unprecedented. Kenneth Lauderet well-known historian who specializes in Christianity, says there needed to have been an underlying cause, a vast release of human energy, the source of which may lay outside of the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. It's a fascinating thought that there is a source for this that cannot be identified by looking at history only on the natural level. That's really what I think he's proposing here. I think we're looking at that today. 
You see, we don't have to move in the limited realm in which supposedly modern historians move. We can see history through the supernatural lens. And what we're seeing in this chapter, I believe, is that catalytic event that infused supernatural energy into these early believers so that this small band of 120 from a remote part of the world could be the beginning of a movement that eventually found its way to Rome and conquered the world. We're seeing that here. And some of it's found in this statement in verse 37. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon on this section uh, last night driving back from New Jersey where we checked in on my dad. And I loved what Keller had to say about this idea. See, what cuts you? What cuts you deep? Something that is stronger than you are. Something that your body gives into or surrenders to and it cuts deeply into you. They were cut to their souls by a truth that was stronger than themselves. And if you're gonna embrace Christianity, essentially you have to yield what you think is reasonable to believe about faith and life and people. Ultimately, you have to be able to surrender to a harder truth. And that happens to these people. But it doesn't just happen to these people, these 3,000 in one day. Imagine that church moves from 120 to 3,120 <laughs> in one day. That's an administrative nightmare. Think about that. I'd like to have that problem, wouldn't you? How did this happen? How were they cut to the heart? Well, we saw it in those early verses of chapter one. We saw that true Christianity is rooted in a message about who Jesus is, the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit, and a mission to bring that truth and reality to people around us. Wherever the church has recovered that simple but hard and fixed truth, God has used it everywhere and at all times to cut men and women to the heart, to redeem whole societies, to bring transformation in how they lived and how they loved and even how they died. We see that at work here. They were cut to the heart by two types of power that Jesus said you'll receive. He said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And of course, that's an important one. But there was another power at work too. It was the power of the gospel. Remember what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. You have the power of the gospel to bring transformation. But that wasn't enough. What came with them was the presence of the Holy Spirit that both empowered believers, but also did exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. He would convict the world of sin. The word convict means to allow a person to examine themselves to the point where they come to reality of their need. That's what the word conviction means. Our society tends to reject the message of the cross and the gospel because we see it as something that produces guilt. No, it doesn't. It shouldn't. And if we're presenting it in a way that people feel guilt, then we're not doing our job because guilt is something we all live with already. Guilt is a condition that we're born in where we are apart from God. What the gospel's meant to do is to enlighten us to our need. You see, guilt has condemnation and death at the end of it. Conviction 
is about realization and life. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Without that, when we are trying to preach Jesus, arguing and debating, we can pound people to death. But when the Holy Spirit partners with that message and it comes across in love, the Holy Spirit cuts deeper than our words can. Cuts people to the heart. It helps them understand their need for this. And that's exactly what we see happen here. Now, what I'd like to do is to step back and fill in one more piece from last week, and then we're gonna take a look at what this message was and what the result of it was. So take out your, your inserts, your notes, and look at, again, what takes place in these first 13 verses. It was the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, one of three major festivals for the Jewish people that already existed. The equivalent to our Thanksgiving The harvest had come in, and they offered grain offerings to the Lord in gratitude for his giving of the harvest, but it also had come to commemorate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, but not just the writing of the law, but the coming of God to meet them. See, Mount Sinai is the moment where God begins describing himself to Israel after they've come out of Egypt, not as the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Mount Sinai is the first place God says, I am the Lord, your God. And the fact that the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed on Pentecost is very important because it was the ultimate fulfillment of it. And we saw three signs that the Holy Spirit had come, wind, fire, and languages. Last week we talked about wind and fire, and we went back to that same imagery at Mount Sinai, right? God came in this great trumpet sound that kept growing and growing, this mighty wind, and then fire and smoke, the Shekinah glory. In that same way, we have wind and fire on Pentecost, but it manifests itself very differently because new thing is happening. Wind represents the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we learned last week that in the Greek and Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word. The fire, wow, that was powerful. Because it says that the fire came and they saw many tongues, which is descriptive of the historic idea of what the Shekinah glory was, that at one time used to appear in the Holy of Holies in that very temple, or at least the earlier versions of that temple, that appeared in the tabernacle, the predecessor of the temple in the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. But now instead of staying in the temple, instead of going into that holy place, it divides and rests on top of every believer. The fire represents the presence of God, but not just his presence, the sanctifying of that place where he has made his presence manifest. Now we come to the third manifestation that we call languages. Now, let's be clear about what this is. I know that um, for many of us, this brings up a lot of controversial ideas because of the current practice and varied opinions about what we call the sign gifts, among which is prayer language, what we refer to as speaking in tongues. And it would be great just to jump off from here into that and do a whole study on it, but that would actually be a distraction it wouldn't help us understand what took place here. Remember last week we saw that this is not meant to be a model for ministry. For instance, there's no indication that the 3,000 that were baptized that day experienced this exact same manifestation. It's an inaugural event. Something new is happening here, and in typical form, as we've seen throughout the Scripture, whenever God brings new revelation or a new work, it is always affirmed through miraculous signs. 
And languages was the third of this trifecta of miraculous signs, all meant to reveal and to teach something. Now, I'm not saying this to explain it away or to say that God doesn't work supernaturally today. I simply want to honor Scripture by talking about what this event means and what these things were as best as we see it. Let's review. Look with me at verse 5, and let's just uh, read what takes place here. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. That's why we're calling it the gift of languages, because that's really what the Greek word means here. Hebrew was the liturgical language of the Jewish people, still largely around the world today. When they come to worship, they speak Hebrew. These Galileans were miraculously given the ability to speak known languages. Now remember, because it was one of the three major festivals, Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the world. And all of these different people who would otherwise not be there, hear them speaking in their own language. Now, it's important that that miracle took place, and often we focus on that alone. What we miss is what they are hearing. It's not just that they miraculously spoke in other languages. It's what they were hearing. And what does it say? We hear them declaring the wonders of God. So if we were to take these three symbols of the coming of the Holy Spirit and put them together, what is it that we would see? We would see God is birthing his church by fulfilling his promise to send the Holy Spirit. The mighty wind says the Spirit has come. The tongues of fire above each person says God will now dwell within the hearts of all who by faith have been sanctified by the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And the tongues, the gift of language says, and this new reality is available for all people everywhere. The fact that God was being glorified, the wonders of God were being glorified in their tongue, as opposed to the exclusivity of the liturgical language, I see as part of this message that it's now available to everyone. And now what's gonna happen is, these miraculous signs open the door for Peter and we're gonna see these very truths fleshed out in his sermon. And this is something I, I think I wanna just pause and talk about just quickly here. The miraculous in scripture, especially this kind of miraculous, the result most often is witness, the wonders of God declared. The miraculous is meant to have people sit back and ask, what does this mean? Even Jesus used the miraculous that way. A miracle, and then a teaching, and an explanation. Listen to me, that ought to be true in your and my life. If we have received the Holy Spirit, then we live supernaturally. 
your life ought to in some way mark the presence and the work of God. People ought to look at you and say, what does it mean that you live differently, that you love differently, that you die differently? Because those things are just as miraculous. In fact, to get people to do that is maybe a greater miracle than these spiritual fireworks we're seeing in Acts chapter two. The miraculous in your life ought to be present, but it's not just there for your good. It's there as part of your mission. Miraculous leads to witness. And so we see Peter's message. Now, let's look at the overall message because this really is a trend setter. What we see set up here is a pattern and a set of themes that we see repeated in chapter three, in chapter 10, and in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. There is, first of all, an explanation of the miraculous event, because the miraculous always results in witness. There's an explanation. Then there is a proclamation of the gospel. The third thing is an invitation to respond and come to faith, to repent and be baptized. So when we look at the explanation first, what we see is Peter standing up and saying, no, we're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit, not just on men, but on women, not just on elders, but on the young. It will just come across all divides. And that's what's taking place here. This is a fulfillment of prophecy and refers to what we are familiar with a phrase known as the last days. Now, I just want to take a couple minutes and talk a bit about that phrase, the last days, because it has been hijacked. It has been kidnapped by that section of Christianity that has become what I call a rapture religion, where it's all about trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back and looking for signs of the times to know if we are in fact in the last days. Because the rapture religion side of Christianity has taken this this phrase, the last days, to refer to the final days that precede the return of Jesus and whatever events are supposed to transpire at the end of that. We miss out on understanding what the real term of the last days is. You see, if you go back to Joel 2 and read it, the Hebrew word there that in the Greek comes forward as last days is simply this, afterward. That's the Hebrew word. After what? After the coming of Christ. The Hebrew prophets use the term last days to refer to the messianic era. Those days that follow the promised coming of the Messiah, that era. And we are in it today. In fact, we have been in it since Jesus came to earth and declared at the beginning of his ministry that the kingdom of God has come. Peter is saying, because we're in those last days, it's being, it's being proclaimed and validated by these miraculous signs. So that's what last days means. I'm thinking of the Millerites back in the mid-1800s, that movement out of which came the Seventh-day Adventists and the Christian Adventist movement of today, where some of them were so convinced that Jesus was going to come, that they were in the last days, that some of his followers even sold all their goods, donned white robes, and got onto their rooftops and waited. That was known as the day of the great disappointment Most recently, we have the Harold Camping phenomenon of of 2012. And of course, for all those who bought into his ideas, that rapture religion, 
uh, the great disappointment. You see, when we do that, we don't understand what the last days mean. If you really understood the last days, it would drive you into mission, not onto your rooftops. Because the last days are the era of the Messiah. You and I still live in that today. Christ reigns in us. Yes, the last days speak of an anticipation of the ultimate coming, the, the return of the Messiah, but the apostles believed he was going to return in their lifetime. So therefore, nothing that they wrote in the Bible should be construed as saying that the expectation of God's coming is much later after certain events that are prophesied take place. The apostles wrote as though Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. And so the simple way to look at the end times is to have that same expectancy. So we are in the last days because we're in the Messianic era and we see the early stages of it in the life of Christ and in the birth of the church. Now quickly look with me at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is the summary, and it's also the outline of his proclamation. The first point is God has made. And what we see in his sermon is the sovereign work of God in history and in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is a work of God part of his redemptive plan. The second point is under the, the phrase, this Jesus. If you have that, you can maybe circle these parts of this sermon, God. And the second is this Jesus, what Jesus. If we go back and look through this, we see five basic things that he presents related to Jesus. The first thing he points to is the validity of who Jesus is based on his own miracles and the signs that occur around him, which include the proclamation of God on two separate occasions that Jesus was his son in whom he's well pleased. So he validates Jesus by his own miracles and signs. That's the first thing. Second, he was put to death. But third, he rose again from the dead. Fourth, that all of that is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. For the Jewish people, this is the path that their faith has brought them to, the person of Jesus Christ, and they need to make a decision about them. And then the fifth part of this Jesus is when he says, we all standing here are witnesses of these events. We saw him, and we testify to this as truth. So that's essentially the proclamation of who Jesus is. The result, as we saw earlier, is they are cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit, in partnership with us as we proclaim the gospel, not only empowers our message, but works in the hearts of men and women and cuts them, cuts them as a surgeon to bring healing, not destruction. And they say to him, what shall we do in relation to this? It's interesting that there are two questions that are asked by the crowd that lead to 3,000 coming to faith. The first question was after the miraculous. What does this mean? And then when Peter is able to give the witness that flows out of the miraculous, they say, what are we supposed to do about this? And that leads to the invitation when he says in verse 38, and let's say this together, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the message that we preach 2,000 years later. 
You know, it's interesting. Some of the more modern, um, what we refer to as theologically liberal corners of Christianity believe that the gospel, as we have historically preached it, was somehow invented by the Apostle Paul, that the original message of Jesus was lost The Apostle Paul became the dominant force and theologically won the debate and the day against the Jewish followers of Jesus, and therefore the gospel that we preach is not the original gospel. But all you have to do is read the eyewitness account of Luke to recognize that the very first sermon was the gospel that today we still know not only transforms individual lives, but can transform whole societies. 3,000 people responded. So where does that leave us as we look at this? It brings us back to Pentecost, the day of first fruits. What is the connection there? What are the first fruits of the new Pentecost? Well, the first is the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? Those who received the Holy Spirit there, those 120 were the first of people who have the Holy Spirit indwelled in them because they have been transformed by the gospel. This is the first fruit of that great movement of the Holy Spirit that will transform an empire. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's those 3,000 themselves. Those 3,000 that come to faith are the first fruits in the harvest that Jesus alludes to. John chapter four, when he says to his disciples, because it wasn't yet harvest, it wasn't time for Pentecost and the celebration yet. He said, some of you are saying, it's four months before harvest, but I say to you, lift up your eyes and just look to the field. Lift up your spiritual eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. They're ripe for it. I believe Jesus was preparing them for this moment in some sense. He saw a great harvest of souls waiting for people just to go into the fields. And the fact that the Holy Spirit comes and these first 3,000 come to him on the, the celebration of the first fruits reminds us that they were meant to be just the beginning. Just the beginning. They were the first of many. You know, a lot of, a lot of people get really negative about the idea of, of, of uh, churches that talk big numbers. But God's concerned about numbers. Numbers matter to God. See, when, when we say numbers, God says souls, people, lives that he loves who need to be reached They're not really numbers, they're just people like you and me that we are meant to be on a mission to bring the gospel. The fields are wiped to harvest. We're still in that harvest today. The reason why we're still here and Jesus hasn't returned is that the harvest is still being gathered. That's our message. That's not only your hope, that's the hope of people around us. Let me just ask you this question. What if, what if your life was demonstrated by the miraculous. Not necessarily by the huge spiritual fireworks that sometimes happen as God moves, but the everyday miraculous that the Holy Spirit brings about by how you live and how you love and how you face death 
What if your life was so marked by the miraculous people looked at you and said, tell me, what does this mean? What does this mean? And what if you saw the world around you as a place just full of people who needed Jesus? And what if you believed the Holy Spirit was at work in all those lives around you and you heard the words of Jesus echo in your heart? Just lift up your eyes and look. Fields are white to harvest. And what if you took that miraculous work of God in your life as people saw it and said, what does this mean? And started pointing them to Jesus. And those shouldn't be what ifs. That's the mission. Let's pray. We've looked at a lot, Father. So much here. We've seen great truth. We've seen ourselves in it. We've seen our roots. We've reaffirmed our historic faith of what it is that is to bring meaning and transformation to our life. The truth about Jesus, which allows us to be forgiven of our sins, sanctified, to have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, invade our lives and transform us. All these things have been reaffirmed today, Father. But Father, there's just that challenge that, that this was meant to be the beginning, just the first fruits. And we ask you to show us how this exponential, how this profound, miraculous transformation of lives around us is meant to occur. Use us, Father. Change us into people who don't see our faith in you as something that works for us and that's good for us and the miraculous is for our good and our benefit. But help us to see it all as part of the mission of gathering in the harvest, all those that you love and died for. In Jesus' name, amen.